Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books Network. My name is Frances Sachs, and I'm here with David Rothenberg, author of Whale Music, Thousand Mile Songs in a Sea of Sound. Hello, David. Thanks for inviting me, Frances. Thanks for being here. So I thought we could start off just talking about your background a little bit. What, what, do, you do, what do you do right now? Well, I'm a professor of philosophy and music at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, which is in Newark. So I kind of teach engineers to listen to whales and birds. And I teach the fun classes that might change their lives, turn them away from chemical engineering towards music production or who knows what else. And we're lucky that this school has a lot of humanities and arts classes because they've always believed like to be a real solid university. You don't just want to study your one specialty. Like it, you become a better person studying all these other things. And it's really a little known secret, I would say, if you're interested in things like this, sometimes the best positions can be at more mainstream, like working class kind of institutions where they let you explore crazy stuff rather than always the most prestigious universities focused on like arts and culture and things. It can be better to teach like regular people who don't think they're interested in whale song. Like they might be a, they're an excellent audience for this stuff because they often say, wow, that's cool. Have you always been interested in recording nature? And I think it started when I was a little kid. My family moved from New York city to Connecticut and I, and I was kind of a shy little boy walk around in the woods by myself and listen to things and kind of, uh, like being alone in nature as a kid. And when I was in high school, I learned that nearby there was a musician who lived named Paul Winter who made music with whales and birds and wolves. And I said, that sounds cool. I want to meet this guy. So I met him and got sort of interested in this possibility. But even then it was a few decades later before I started doing it and realizing that more people should be doing this and that it was a wonderful way to appreciate the natural world more, to hear what's going on out there as something musical not just like language to translate, but that there's music out in the natural world and the whole environment becomes more accessible and beautiful and meaningful if you hear music there. So you're also a musician? Yeah, often playing music with uh, with uh, whale sounds, bird sounds, bug sounds, things like that, Using integrating natural sounds into my music, which is, I'd say, somewhere between jazz and electronic music and like contemporary composition, whatever. I like that these days there's different divisions between genres and music seem to be disappearing in the wash of sound and possibilities we have. But And a lot of musicians make music with natural sounds. I think one difference with me is I write these long books about it, you know, and uh, I write these, these uh, you know, I try and really investigate and try and connect science and music and, and stories and really kind of delve into the, the topic. So often try and explain what can't be explained, like what happens when a person and an animal make music together. You can't really explain this, but 
somehow I've written a lot of pages trying to explain it. So what drove you to making music with whales and with, with insects? And Well, it started with, um, you know, I mentioned uh, Paul Winter really inspiring me. And then maybe 15 years later, I heard there was this Canadian composer, R. Murray Schaefer, famous for putting on whole orchestral works in the wilderness and, and also famous for starting soundscape studies, listening to the environment, a soundscape as opposed to a landscape. And he was turning 60 years old, which is how old I am now. That was in 1993. He turned 60. I was like 31. And there was a conference celebrating his life in Banff, Canada. I went there. There were hundreds of people from around the world interested in music and nature. And it's like, wow, there's like a, there's like a community here. There's like, it's like a, it's like a crew, like there are people into this. And I was fascinated to discover this. And then one of my earliest books was an anthology of writings and sounds by all these people called The Book of Music and Nature. And that came out in the year 2000, I think. It's from that event, I met all these people. And what very few people from that group actually spent time playing live with, with animals. But one guy, Michael Pestel, he was an art professor in Pittsburgh. He said, you got to come to the National Aviary in Pittsburgh and play with these birds. And so I did, and it turned out to be like life-changing and transformative. Like, although most birds in the national aviary had no interest in what I was doing, a few really started to play along. And then I realized you could communicate with the natural world using music. So then I wrote a book about that called Why Birds Sing that sent me to Australia to play with lyre birds, probably the best singing bird in the world. And, uh, writing about the science of birdsong, how much we know, how much we don't know. And that was probably the most popular of my books even still. And afterwards, the publisher said, what do you want to do next? I said, we're right about whales. What do you mean whales? I said, whales sing. He said, what do you mean they sing? I said, you don't know about that? And then I, what interested me is that people didn't know that whales made music until the 1950s when the Navy made these secret recordings. They were listening for Russian submarines. Instead, they heard whales and they didn't want to tell anyone about this for like 15 years. When they finally did, it was like a big cultural moment. The song of the humpback whale went all through popular culture beginning of the 1970s. There were hit songs with whales in the background. There was classical music. There was like TV shows where whale song appeared, films. And it just, it just spread through the culture. And it, it, this song is what led people to think about saving whales. Before that, environmentalists didn't really th think much about whales because people didn't pay much attention to them. Whale watching began. The song, the whale song, really got that going. And that whole history really interested me. That, um, that how could the sound from nature really have such an effect? And then uh, that's the story I wanted to tell. People didn't know about these sounds until recently. Bird songs, people always have known about as long as there have been people because been, there have been birds around. You hear them. It's right there. Whales are underwater. You can't hear them. So the mystery of that really excited me. And as a musician who wants to interact with these different animals using music, I, I plan to travel around the world, play with different kinds of whales. So humpback whales are the main singers in this book. We also have beluga whales. They're very intelligent. They, people knew they sing. They would pop out of the water and sing. Very interactive. And I went to Russia to do that. Back when you could go to Russia, they were our friends, you know, the, those brief times. And several times I've been to Russia, you know, meeting whale people. It's always been fun. And I went to Canada to play with orcas, killer whales. 
and uh, that I've never uh, sperm whales are also in the book because they make these rhythmic clicks. There's great stories about them, but I have not been encountering them in person yet. But so those are the main different kinds of whales I encountered. And then I wrote this whole story. And the first time this book came out was 2008. And now that it's 15 years later and out of print, like most books become, I said, I'm going to do a new expanded, super cool version with pictures and, and a new chapters talking about what happened over the last 15 years. So much has happened with people getting interested in this topic. And it's, it's great to be able to witness that and, and tell the story again in this new and improved way. And so... So anybody writing books knows that books appear and disappear and they, you know, they sometimes they can come back and it was all my idea to do it this new way. Again, it's not like the publisher said, we want another version. I said, I want to do another version. And so, so much has changed in the way we understand sound and how many people are interested in this and technology. It's, it's great to be able to tell the revised new story. The biggest thing that's changed, I don't know if you want me to ramble on about this, or is that when this book came out in 2008, it was a radical idea to suggest that whales have culture or that animals in general have culture. And when the idea was proposed by Hal Whitehead, sperm whale scientist in a, in a marine mammal journal, maybe you know, 2004 or something, it was published with a hundred pages of commentary by scientists, philosophers, anthropologists as to whether an animal could have culture. It was really something to debate. By 2023, pretty much the majority of biologists and everyone else says, yes, of course, animals have culture, which means a group of them can learn some behavior, pass it on to their offspring. And it's not like genetically determined, like different groups live different ways of the same animal. They learn different behaviors and they pass it on. That's culture, learned behavior that's shared by a group of animals or people. And once you realize animals have culture, of course they can have music, they can have art, they can have all kinds of things that make us much closer to them. And, and we really feel like we're connected to them in ways that we're, we're still just beginning to understand. But you know, whales are very hard to figure out. They're underwater, we're above water. We still don't know much about what they're doing. But it's amazing how much we've been able to find out and also how much we still don't know and how much we are uh, kind of enhanced as a species to start paying attention to this stuff. connects us more to the natural world, which is really important at a time when we seem to be destroying it. And just, you know, our whole way of life is leading towards complete destruction of the habitats of so many thousands of species every year. Any effort to understand them, appreciate them more, respect what's going on is certainly a good thing. You're talking about whales having culture, and that is a, a relatively new idea. What Can you talk a little bit about why we're starting to think or why we're starting to acknowledge that whales do have culture? Yeah, why is this happening now? I think it's because people realize both scientists and the rest of us realize that we are we've made a lot of assumptions about what's around us that are that are limited and inaccurate we, we don't take the natural world as seriously as we can we we jump to conclusions about nature we, we imagine everything is is kind of like a machine all planned out and it doesn't have the great variation and intelligence that 
is really there that we've just missed because we're not paying enough attention. The very idea that like animals could make music was previously seen as, you know, kind of wishful thinking or anthropomorphism, imagining everyone, everything out there is like us. But with time, we realized that, you know, things like music and culture don't have to be just human. It's just a, something in life that you, it can be there if you start to, to open up to it. So are these whale cultures based on sound primarily? Well, I mean, the, the clearest example, one that you see like in the National Geographic Secrets of the Whales TV show, which although a fairly mainstream, like, you know, nature TV show does really push this idea. So it, it's it, what it does is like, okay, killer whales, they're black and white. You know, what do you want to see in a killer whale TV show? You want to see the killer whale go up on the beach, grab a seal and drag it into the water. Okay. There's a few places in the world where that's what they do. They eat seals, but then it switches to a scene, the same kind of whales, same exact species in Antarctica, the whales and seals hunt together. They catch fish. They don't eat. Those killer whales don't eat mammals, the same animals living a whole different way. And so if you, if you manage to talk to that whale and say, Hey, there's a seal next to you, you should eat him. Say like, that's just not what we do here. You know, and just to see it graphically, it's just brilliant to, to make that so clear. They show that. The more subtle idea is one of sound, like this group of whales makes this sound. This other group makes this sound. This is more subtle, hard to give across. So sometimes it involves sound. And there, you know, most clearly with sperm whales, they make these clicking sounds that identify which family and which group they're in. And that's really fascinating. It's very hard to hear it and understand it until you read about it. It's not instantly audible. But with humpback whales, their music and the complexities of that music, the purposes of it are really not well understood. We don't know why this whale needs to do it. We know that kind of mysteriously, this sound is so beautiful, it really touched people when they found out about it in the early 70s. It made people... Um, it made people... Um, you know, cry. They would be moved to tears hearing whales. And this sound by this huge animal under the sea was mysteriously accessible to us, like a similar range to the sound of a cello or a bass clarinet. You know, that, that why was this whale using the same frequencies we understand? Like, is that just by chance? Or is it by some aspect of how nature works? You know, and why would these whales repeat these patterns over and over again, like a piece of music rather than like a language? So how does sound work in humpback whale culture? Can you define a specific group by a specific song? Other whale species you can. But with humpback whales, when it comes to the song, you can tell what ocean a whale is from. Like all the ones in the Indian Ocean have this song. All the ones in the Pacific Ocean have this song, the Atlantic Ocean, this song. That's how it... And the very notion of that is pretty weird. Like... Lots of birds have dialects like the white-throated sparrows, sorry, the white-crowned sparrows here use this sound. In this other area, slightly different sound. Like they're very divided, even though the birds migrate and fly huge distances. How can one whole ocean have one song for a humpback whale? What's that about? And why do they change it from year to year if they all want to sound the same? They change it together. Like these are kind of... You can get lost in these questions and say, huh, what, this, huh? But, but the very notion they change but all want the same new song suggests a different idea than each individual trying to stand out. 
So it means they want to change. It's like the new pop song. Everyone needs to sing this song. If you don't know this song, you're not with the, with it. You know, but but it's not that different than last year's song. It has to be sort of the same. So a whole ocean-wide population of humpback whales will be singing the same song throughout a year. And and that song is constantly changing. And the, the whales in that ocean are changing the song all together simultaneously. Yeah, we can figure out why or even how. There's these different hypotheses. And, and they're not like totally different. Like one, like, uh, okay, so so in Hawaii this year, we heard this sound. They often would go, and then, for a few minutes, then they'll switch. But this year in that section, it was more like, so, oh, it's gotten a little more rhythmic and really low. That's interesting. Hadn't really heard that before. So that would be a slight difference. You know, so so you still recognize it's a humpback whale song with the specifics. They've added one phrase or something like that. It changes a little bit. So, and if you go back, you know, 30 years ago, then it might, you still tell it's a humpback whale song and these differences you know, it takes a while to pay attention to it. And because it happens kind of slowly, not too many people have the patience to listen to and hear all this stuff. So that's why they pr- print it out in these graphic things I have in the book, these sonograms to show like, okay, here's the structure. You can look at it. So you don't have to spend 20 minutes listening to these weird sounds that might seem strange to you. Like, um... That is so interesting. So there's no consensus about why the song would be changing or if that's conveying any new information for the year. Yeah. I mean, there's some theories when one, the basic mainstream theory is that, look, it doesn't convey that much information. It's like a piece of music. Like, okay, what are bird songs for? I'm mentioning bird songs because we know a lot more about birds because they're all around. Like, like uh, usually we think the male birds sing to defend a territory and attract a female. So what are they doing? Like a uh, chickadee, their song is do-do, It's got two notes. That's fine for the chickadees to do that very thing. That's what they do. They make other sounds, but those sounds are more talking. Like chickadee, chickadee-dee-dee-dee-dee. That's a talking, that's a call of a chickadee. They're used in more social situations. So why is the other one called a song? I guess... Over the centuries, people recognize that some kinds of animal sounds are like music. They're performed, and the performance has to be done the right way. Okay, listen to a mockingbird. They're going to sing for like uh, 20 minutes, all these different sounds. It's very organized. It's very crazy. Williamsburg's an excellent place to hear mockingbirds. They're incredibly loud there You know, in the summer. I've heard mockingbirds that sound like electronic music because they're so loud. They have so much they have to go over. And so, but their song is long and complicated, all kinds of interesting things. I may write a book on Mockingbird song in the future. I did one project with some scientists where we really analyzed this. You can look that up. I wanted to demonstrate the Mockingbird has this musical style. It's really musical. What's it for? The same thing as the chickadee, to defend its territory, to attract a mate. Why does it need to sing so long? No good reason for that. Darwin postulated that in addition to natural selection, which seemed to be kind of pragmatic, we have sexual selection where just females prefer extreme things. And they, over the generations, you get things like peacock's tails that are kind of useless, turkeys and their big displays. These are not very practical things to waste your evolution on. But, but sexual selection can go for wild, crazy stuff. 
another book I wrote was called Survival of the Beautiful about that. Not just survival of the fittest. The humpback whale song is survival of the beautiful. We hypothesize the males evolved this song because somehow maybe the females like it. Okay, so whales are pretty hard to observe, but still people have been trying to study this for 50 years now. How many times do you, do you think we've ever seen a female whale show any interest in this song? Well, I know from the book that Zero. only once, sir. Really, basically, <laughs> nobody's ever seen it. But it's hard to see things underwater. Most people who study this just assume the males are trying to impress females. But among the one team, Flip Nicklin and Jim Darling, who actually observed after ten years, they mostly they saw nothing. But when they did see things, they saw the whales. Two male male whales stop singing, swim close together swim next to each other for a while, then separate and start to sing again. That's just so crazy. Nobody knows what that's about. So maybe our whole theory is completely off. We don't even know what's going on. But we, we do sort of think that there isn't a lot of information necessarily in these, in these uh, sounds, but just a kind of musical need, like the music of a mockingbird, the music of a, of a hermit thrush, the music of a humpback whale, they just evolved the need to perform like this. Other whales don't need to, even the similar species. The bowhead whale also has a song that's also not so well known. You know, every species is a world in itself, and most of them we know nothing about. So once you start delving into it, all the generalizations seem like inaccurate. You know, there's too much out there. You know, so you, it's easy to get lost in a wash of these kinds of details. This whale does this, this one does that. And that's the challenge in writing books like this. You have to tell the stories that lure people along. I like these personal stories of trying to make music with whales. The people who don't like these books say, he just writes about himself. Like, I want to learn about the whales. What is this idiot? He takes his clarinet out, play with whales. I go, yeah, well, that's what you sign up for. <laughs> that's that's. Read someone else's book. <laughs> and, and But you'll see most books on whales actually stem from a personal encounter. Like, uh, like something happens to someone, it draws them into the topic. And I think that's an important thing about people and nature. We can have these encounters that t change us, that touch us, and lead us to places we don't realize we could go. And we start paying attention to things in nature that we otherwise didn't realize. So since this is a book based in, like grounded in your personal experience playing music with whales, just off the science, off the, off the record scientifically, uh -huh. why do you personally think that whales sing? I think they sing, you know, the same reasons people sing. We need to. It's part of our very essence. Humans need to make music. It's not useful in a pragmatic sense. It's a waste of time, you know. But it matters to us because we can communicate emotions in ways you can't do any other way. And you don't quite know what's going on. You can't explain it. No books about music, no explanations of music can touch the actual experience. And whales just, it's the very essence. To be a humpback whale means you're an animal who sings. And you were singing for yourselves for centuries. People finally learned about this. Hmm. Now we know about it. We almost have an obligation to join in, to find a way in. And the great thing about playing along with whales or birds or bugs is you can communicate with beings with whom you cannot speak. You don't even know what's going on, but something's going on. Like, and that's why we all make music. You, you, you're, you're a musician. You know when you play with people, you, you can't always explain what's happening. Uh, when it works, it, there's something mysterious and wonderful and, and connecting. And so when playing with a whale, sometimes something happens that just seems like, well, something really happened here.
You can't always tell, even in the moment. You can't tell what the whales are thinking about you, especially in my last trip to Hawaii. There are too many whales. You're just like joining into the choir. And people ask, well, did the whale respond? What did he do? Did he copy you? Did you copy him? I'm not so interested in that copying. I'm interested in like making a music that no one species could make alone. And if I'm going to present it to people on the many albums I've released on this, I tend to find one section. I said, I feel like something interesting is here. You listen to it. You see what happens. And uh, I wouldn't try and edit it too much if I'm presenting it as something live. I'll also like take lots of sounds and make music out of them. You know, I, I think that's valuable too, but, but I wouldn't pretend that one and the other is the same. They're different. Like to do something alive with the sounds of nature, I think is really special and unusual. And I would encourage more people to do that. To take the sounds and put them in your own music is also good. But as we all know today, you can turn any sound into anything else. It all becomes like raw material. So at one point, in the book, you and Jim Nolman are out on a boat with your instruments. And I think you're with the clarinet. He was with the guitar, I believe, electric guitar. And it just becomes clear that you both have different ideas of what it means to jam with whales. He wants to play more human styles. And you want to and have the whales adapt to those human styles to show that they to demonstrate that they are engaging with the music but you want to adapt your clarinet sounds to be more like the whale style of, of song. Why do you think you approached the jamming differently than Jim Nolman? Good. That's a good, good thing to bring up. Yeah. So Jim Nolman, I mean, this guy is like a great character. He's like, the, he's like the one funky, cool guy who wants to play music with whales, like a real pioneer. And as I say in the book, I first ran across him when I was 10 years old watching little TV and I see this guy playing a flute with turkeys. And like, and I just, whoa, that was crazy. That was, that was the first glimmer of this I heard. I didn't think about it at all for years later until he told me he did that. And then it came right into my memory. Like, oh, I saw it. Amazing. It all goes back to you. And so Jim Nolman is, um, you know, he, he's like... Um, He's one person, he's one of the few people who complained about his portrayal in the first version of the book. He says, you describe me as some kind of old hippie, you know. I said, Jim, like you, number one, you are an old hippie, but two, you're like a heroic figure. You have to really see, like you, you're, and I changed a few things to make it clear how much I respected his whole journey. But yes, that he, he, he thought like, let's just play some reggae and the whales like that. And it, and certainly if, if any of, musicians you want to work with weird sounds you play some nice groove underneath anything's going to sound good with it or whales work really well you know they fit into um, things like that that's the easy way i've always said like i want people to watch people's music change in context with the whales don't don't make them fit into your music we want to learn from them and one of the reasons i have a forward in the book from scott mcveigh you know, who's one of the co-discoverers of the structure of the humpback whale song is because I, I don't know that he shares this view as well. When he, he was working with John Lilly, who was, who was trying to get dolphins to speak English, working on this weird project in the Virgin Islands in the early 60s. And he said, no, no, I, I want to learn the dolphin language. Can't we do that? You know, what, we want to learn from them. And um, 
He's, he's still around in his late 80s. And he's also one of the people that got me interested in this because his daughter was a friend of mine in college. And she said that that her dad like discovered the, st- the song of the humpback whale. I said, what? That's so crazy. I want to meet this guy. And I also met him years later before I met him. And now, now we're, we're pretty good friends. And uh, so this idea, like we often too easily um, think like animals are intelligent if they do something like us. And there's a great recent book about that by a dolphin scientist called If Nietzsche Were a Narwhal. (laughs) It just talks about how people are so impressed when animals do something like us. They must be so smart. But why would we think human activity is intelligent? And the whole book is examples of like how our human bias makes us imagine certain things are intelligent. One chapter of that book, this might be a sidetrack, says like, look all throughout the animal world, homosexual behavior is everywhere. Like it's quite common, all kinds of animals, different groups. But are there any animals who get upset about this? Do they get outraged? Are there groups of animals who say, you, you must leave the society. I'm shocked. I can't believe you're doing this. No, it's only humans that have moral outrage about supposedly deviant behavior. That's a human sign of intelligence or something. Animals can try all kinds of things out. They don't worry about stuff like that. So who's intelligent here? You know, that, 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 I mean, he has many other examples that have to do with like, we don't think ants are intelligent, but they have these complex societies where everyone just does a little bit. They all fit together. They didn't need all this computer software to, in, to create networks and figure out. That's an incredible kind of social intelligence that people tend to overlook because it's not like human intelligence. And so how about with music? We think, oh, the humpback whale sounds horrible. They, they're farting. They're screeching. Ooh, yeah, ooh. But what, that's their music. You want to you wanna tap into it. You start doing things like that. Like, you know, just like we often find styles of music that at first we don't like and you learn about, you start to like it more. Like you have to learn from what's around you and not just try and teach it all the time. So to, to make music across these cultures, it's just, just, just like doing it human music. Let's combine like hip hop and Okinawan or something. You know, it, it, it might not seem obvious, but it can be done. You're combining whale and, and person and it's going to make something in between, you know. And so that, you know, so yeah, I mean, I, I, looking back, I said, yeah, let's play some reggae with the whales. That's fine. But also let's try and really be transformed by the whales. And of course, Jim Nolman has very much been transformed by what he's heard from whales. He's still around there. He's, he's still do, doing it. It, it. He he didn't complain about this version of the book. He said, thank you. You know, And, and, and the picture of him, I just think is great, you know. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I picked, I, I used photographs I had had over the years, not necessarily everyone, but the pictures that really helped to tell the story of what's there, pictures I really liked are in there. And I think that that one of Jim Nolman, like it just, he's looking at me like just with skepticism and, and agelessness, like, a, a, you know, he's 20, you know, 15 years older now. He probably looks the same, even more intensely. Like I've seen it all. I've done it all. I love how he says like, Oh, it was really just one or two whales that cared about us. And they're long gone. Like this generation, they just don't care. Or Roger Payne also still around the great whale pioneer. He said, uh, yeah, in the 60s, the whales sang much better songs. Of course, you can't say that. <laughs> Kids today, like the music today, I just can't listen to it. <laughs> 
So do you think that the whales are actually acknowledging or listening to or even, I mean, dare I say, enjoying the music? That I'm playing? I mean, uh, I was talking to Jim Darling, the the one guy who listened to humpback whales the most. He goes, you know, that whale's only going to care about whale sounds. He's not going to be interested in what you play. And I said, okay, listen to this. And so I played him a, a little fragment. And then he just said, what? What? That didn't happen. I could tell that he heard something that, and this is the one guy who knows what he's hearing, having listened for 10 years. He heard something that surprised him. And then he thought, hmm, maybe we should play different sounds to them. Like he was surprised. What he heard was the whales tend to go, ooh, ooh, they're going up and down. And I played oh, a steady note and the whale went, oh, a surprisingly steady note, a tiny thing that, that um, you know, so then I think that these whales do listen and change their sounds. They might respond to something, but we don't know how they're actually interacting. And one thing that... Um, end of the book, I talked to Annie Lewandowski. She has been out listening with Katie Payne, who used to be married to Roger Payne. And I think, you know, in recent years has become much more vocal talking about the more musical cultural side of, of animals. She's also studied elephants. She had been sort of quieter over the years, but, you know, like as in many cases, people recognize that these famous male scientists often had a woman behind doing a lot of the work that didn't get the recognition. And I have to say, Katie Payne is still going out studying whale song. Roger Payne isn't. She's still out there doing it and still thinking more sensitively about the structure. But she and Annie were discussing, like, you know, we, we all say they all sing the same song. There's a lot more individual variation than we've admitted. The other thing that happens is that they really their song overlaps with each other in very specific ways. And no scientist has talked about that. But any musician kind of hears it like a canon or a round like different sections of the song overlap and it sounds kind of cool and might, and might mean something, but we just don't know, you know? So one reason, the fact that we don't know means that someone who, without any preconceived notion can go out there and hear humpback whale song and come up with ideas about it can be useful because people aren't always listening in creative enough ways. So I always, I encourage more people to play music with whales. I also mentioned in the book, it's illegal. To, to do what we're doing, stick an underwater speaker and then harass the whales. I can see why they make that illegal. Uh, I, you know, I don't think they we're bothering the whales all that much. We stop pretty quickly, whereas they have to listen to loud boats and ships and seismic explorations and sonar tests all the time. Things that are really loud and really bother them. You know, this music is not likely to, to harass them too much, but but I, you know, I respect that the rules are there. Is that ever a fear that you have that that people going out, that there's going to be too many people going out trying to do what you're doing and bringing large amps and trying to? I, I tell people use caution, but there's too many people going out to watch whales and swim with whales and get too close to them. So just like, just 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 don't overdo it and and don't use equipment that's too loud and and you know you know, start and stop. Don't do too much of it and, and listen. And if you, if you see that you're upsetting any whale, you should stop. And you can, you can often tell. But the, I mean, another view, the precautionary principle says, like, if we don't know how we might affect a, a population, we shouldn't do it because we don't know what the effects are. And that's, that's how you end up with like cane toads in Australia decimating the ecology because they were brought in to control some problem, but they ended up becoming their own problem. Well, we have uh, plant diseases and things like that, you know. 
so you should always use caution. And uh, but I think playing music to animals is like not likely to have anywhere near the effect of the other things we're doing, and it may even have an effect of um, you know making animals take us more seriously and get along with us better. I often try and do these things like in my other book, Nightingales in Berlin, playing music with the nightingales in a city where they're already subject to so much noise. Like, like, And it's not true that all animals want to be as far away from humans as possible. Humpback whales congregate in a place with a lot of ships, a lot of boats, a lot of people following them around. Gray whales, even more so, have learned to mate and give birth right next to people. So you can go to off Baja, California and get really close to whales. Humpback whales don't show that stuff to us. We've never seen a humpback whale mate or give birth. But gray whales will do it right in front of people, and they never used to. They've learned that. Another example of whale culture and whale-human interaction. So that's the place to get the closest to whales. You can touch them, pat them on the back and stuff. And They've just gotten used to this in this area. Is that a good thing? I don't think it's hurting those gray whales too much. It's better than we used to just kill them. And that now we sort of, you know, take them more seriously. But there are people who say, look, wild animals, keep your distance. Don't encourage these kind of relationships. And there's so many stories like this different ways. But one thing is definitely true. People are obsessed with animals. We're so fascinated by these creatures that we, I guess we know they're sort of like us and totally unlike us. And we're trying to figure out why and how. Like, look at, you know, your pets. Look at the cat. Does a cat understand us? There's a mind there. There's some individual, but we know that they're, we're not sure what they're getting, but they're getting something. You know, people have so much to say about this. And, you know, so animals are just endlessly fascinating. And I think because they're like us, but unlike us, and we want to figure out how and why. And whales are uniquely fascinating just because they have the biggest brains on the planet. They're the largest animals who've ever lived. And when you figure out that they sing, it's just absolutely incredible. You, know, we all, you, ought, you ought to listen to that music. And so you don't like it, listen to it more, think about it, adjust it into something you might like, change the pitch, change the speed, you know, work with it. The single thing people miss the most in whale song is the structure is what's interesting, not just the sound. The structure can be hard to hear because we don't have enough patience. But if you if you take the time, you realize that there really is a music there. Would it be less beautiful to you if it was discovered that whale music was actually about just navigation or mating rituals or communication or um, even self-definition? Well, all those things are part of music, mating rituals, navigation, self-definition, but they're done. Humans use music for those things in very subtle, beautiful ways, you know, and like these things that sound very straightforward, like navigation, mating, you know, they're actually wonderfully complicated, confusing and beautiful. And the same with animals, you know, so if it turns out the whales are, are recounting information, it would be really cool. Like, like they're just taking, they're just saying where they've been things like that. Or, um, yeah. I mean, when you ask people, what, what do you think the whale songs are for? Usually they say communication is the standard answer. And I, and then I immediately say, what does that mean? What, what's communication? You know, the, the, the idea we're trying to say something to someone, but is it something we could decipher? 
you know, Tom Mustel wrote a book, How to Speak Whale, recently. As a whale enthusiast, you, I tried to put a big uh, for further reading section in my book, listing every possible book I thought was any good. Undrowned Black Feminist Perspectives on Marine Mammals. That's a good one. And the author of that's a really famous, cool poet who I'd really like to meet, Alicia Gums, you know. And there's so many great ways people try and delve into this this topic, and it keeps expanding. And so, uh, for an animal that we really that really lives a whole different way than we do, it's amazing how interested people are in whales, you know. And so, I, I expect we're going to learn so many more things about all these animals over the coming years. Some people believe artificial intelligence is going to do it all for us. I think all that stuff might help, but but like everything else, people say about data and AI, like don't oversell it. You know, you know it can be useful, but come on, we have a lot of data already, and we're still clueless. You know, <laughs> but but uh, I'm interested in in people thinking about that in that way. I'm probably more critical than Tom is about how useful AI will be. But that's a kind of another story that it's, you know, it's hard. The reason we are so impressed by AI in many aspects is we're just a little bit clueless on how to communicate and what intelligence is ourselves. And so, but we still have this thing that, that if you think that whales are making music, it can be very hard to decipher. Indeed, you can't decipher it. You have to experience it as performed and let the emotion carry you along. Like to me, it's by no means clear that a musicologist who's an expert on Beethoven actually appreciates Beethoven more than someone who hears his music for the first time and bursts into tears, you know. That person isn't, doesn't necessarily have a worse experience than someone who knows everything that's going on. The person, everything that's going on just knows what's going on. They've examined it and that's a different, different thing you know, with its right. own. You yeah. can still have an understanding of it. You might you might appreciate it more. You might it's easy to learn stuff about things and like it less. Like so many aspects, you hear this beautiful thing, and then you learn that the person who made it was a terrible guy, and then you might like it less, or yeah, something like that. You know that you. Have, but the it's interesting to figure out how this how and why this experience touches us. Like it's amazing that humpback whale songs sound beautiful to people. Why should that be? You know, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. It was interesting for me to read that whales have spindle cells, mm-hmm. which are not a lot of animals have them. I think only like great apes, I think you said. And yes, right. And I, I don't remember. It was maybe a couple other species. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went to see them. You can see them at the, the, the Icon building in, in uh, you know, Cornell Medical Center uptown, you know, where they do medical research. And these slides, you can see. Yeah, that was really fun. Let's go see the spindle cells. And the spind- how the spindle cells are associated with, in the human brain, with the yeah. ability to feel empathy and love and to right. care about other people and feel emotional pain. Yeah, unusual to find them exactly. And so. And I wondered if that has something to do with why you're defining the sounds that they're making as music, which is which is emotive inherently. Yeah, I think it does. It, it means like, uh, but again, there's a lot of music in bird song. And birds probably don't have those cells, and birds are much smaller brains. But their music is what the brains are for. 
But these whales, you know, they, they, that's why they fascinate us. Their brains are so big. What are they doing with those brains? Right. Do they have to do anything in fact? Are they just living in the sea gracefully, calmly, feeling and thinking so much? Who knows? Like we, we, we are in awe of whales in a sense. There's some set, you know, some people make fun of that and say it's misguided, but we are, we, there's something about them that I think it, even before we knew all this scientific stuff, people were in awe of whales hundreds of years ago. Just as animals, there's something special about them. Well, probably for even more than hundreds of years. Have you read anything? Or is there a lot of literature published about indigenous knowledge of whales? There should be more. There, there, is, there is more. In fact, I know people working on this. And I would say, you know, it, there's a lot of great indigenous stuff on whales. But you know, we shouldn't forget indigenous people, you know, mostly were like killing whales and eating them. And, and, but also being very much connected to and respecting them. And, uh, but the kind of deeper indigenous thought, it's more philosophical, there's more, more in-depth things. Some of that knowledge is like protected. Not everyone's supposed to find out about it, but more and more of that kind of thing is coming out. One of my friends, Olivia Wyatt, who's an amazing filmmaker and she sails by herself around the Pacific. She's constantly sailing. She came in 2019. She's working on a film about indigenous knowledge of whales and she's traveling around. She's a pretty impressive character. She's trying to delve into this, you know, but some of these things, what I like the story is, is where these, the, the, the old and new are mixed. Like I love the story of whale writer, Witi Imahaira, the Maori writer. You know, he wrote this very popular book that became a film about whales, but he wrote that because he was living in New York to be part of the gay scene. And he heard a humpback whale swam up the Hudson River. He goes, whales, yeah, that connects to my tradition. I haven't thought about them much before. Let's let's make something up, something old and new together. And it's this amazing book based on this mythology of the whale rider connected to what was known now about humpback whales. So sometimes the indigenous is as contemporary as everything else because people today can combine their traditions with what science says and things like that. And I think that I, I would hope to see much more of that kind of knowledge coming out, the mixture of the old and new where, where traditions go up again. I know there's a, uh, there's many examples of like ecology and, and indigenous knowledge coming together. Like in Australia, there's a bird called the night parrot that's basically extinct, but then there were reports of them actually still existing. And they start asking these indigenous Aboriginal people like, oh yeah, of course they're those night parrots. We just don't talk about it. Can you help us? Yeah, yeah, we can work on this. And so then they kind of work together with what the ecologists said to what the local people knew. And together their knowledge was advanced towards now identifying where these birds are. And uh, the two perspectives were different, but complementary in a way. I, I, I would say over time, when I looked at this book and revised it, I, I really was thinking like, boy, I could not write a book just like this today. I wouldn't have the patience to go through all the science and and read all these all these details and try and and try and sim- make them clear enough for people to grasp. Now I'm much more into telling stories. I would just start telling the stories and be less interested in all the data and information. Like my next book is on secret sounds of ponds, these mysterious underwater sounds you can hear in ponds right around here. They're not hard to find. They're really nearby, but in a way just as mysterious. Like there's a, there's a bug this big called the lesser water boatman 
that, that can make a sound as loud as a whale. And you can't, you hear nothing above the water. As loud as a whale? It can be so loud, you think something's destroyed your equipment. Like all of a sudden it gets so loud. And I've heard wow. it. Hard. Now, and so you were holding up your hand. It was like as big as the... I picked them up and I've never got them to make any sound when you've taken them out of the water. Like this. How, how big is that? Just for listeners. You know, like, like uh, the lesser water, there's a water, bigger water boatman. The lesser water boatman is like a centimeter in length, you know. And it can make the sound as loud as a whale? Yeah, you know, by vibrating its penis underwater. Oh my gosh. Crazy. That's <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, right, right. There of this book that, that's coming soon, The Secret Sounds of Ponds. He's saying, like, you, you just don't tell that penis story so many times. Like, <laughs> yeah, but it's the best story. You have to, like, like you know, what can you do with it? You know, it's like, <laughs> and, and also discovered very recently because you hear nothing above the water. And there's a paper that shows, in general, like, bigger animals make bigger sounds. There's, like, this graph, and then this bug goes, Choo! and it gets so much louder than you think it could be. What reason? Very unclear. You know, they're definitely competing with each other, the males making this sound. But why do they need to be so loud? Like, who knows? Like, it's just weirdness. Nature's full of weird, cool stuff. I think we have to celebrate that. And we like telling stories and musically, I like just interacting with the strangeness. And, and you know, recently, I, it's it's much closer trip to play music with pond sounds. And it's in a way even weirder than whales. It's like it's everywhere. Everyone should be listening underwater for ponds. And um, that's what the whole book is about. That's coming out, I don't know, in the fall or next spring. And it's much more experimental text and more kind of mixing science and poetry and sounds. And sounds are integrated into the book. There's all these QR codes. Whale Music Book has one QR code where you can go there and see all the whale music I put out in one playlist. But this other book has codes throughout so as you're reading you hold up your phone it'll start to play the sound wow that sounds well i guess we're gonna have to look out for that hopefully people don't you don't start a giardia epidemic with people trying to listen go put their heads into ponds and listen to you should use the hydrophone but i don't think ponds are are so dangerous per se okay i'm probably listening for whales not you know after the shark bit the end of my hydrophone maybe it was more dangerous than i thought Ponds, I mean, the most dangerous thing is is you could get, uh, you know, you could sink into the swamp or something. It's not that dangerous. Quicksand. Yeah, exactly. Quicksand appears. The word quicksand is in the book a few times. Oh, okay. There, well, there wasn't any quicksand uh, that we found. Yeah, find some mud, but basically, a pond is a friendly environment in general. What? Yeah. You're out well, of time. You I what think else? we have just run out of time but thank you so much david for that conversation it was so well, interesting I hopefully we talked enough about what's fun about this book yeah right okay well um yes i right. really encourage everyone to read it very interesting read i'm looking forward to your next book i will definitely be reading that one as well and um thank you so much thanks a lot <laughs>